Hello, I'm Peter Viss and I'm a senior advisor at Brad Peterson Public Affairs in Brussels. And today I'm going to have a chat with my guest of the day, uh, who is Jill Duggan. She is the executive director Europe of the Environmental Defence Fund. So thanks for joining Jill for this chat. We're going to talk about the COP first the COP26 that is taking place this year. How, how's the COP going to look like this year? There doesn't, by all appearances, there isn't a treaty to adopt or something that would really make it a big COP. So will it be a big COP? Well, I think obviously one of the things that COP26, which was meant to happen in Glasgow last November and was thrown off uh, course by the pandemic, and the UK government, who are the hosts, are still saying that it's going to happen this November, but let's let's get to that. So the, the reason COP26 is important is it's the first opportunity that countries have to revisit what they offered to tackling climate change. So back in Paris in 2015, 192 countries, somebody will tell me I'm wrong about that, and it's 191 or 193, signed up to try to limit temperature increases to below two degrees above pre-industrial levels and aiming for 1.5 degrees of warming. And that was to not avoid the impacts of climate change, we will still feel them, but to avoid catastrophic impacts of climate change. However, what they signed up to, what they offered into the Paris Agreement actually still amounted to about three degrees centigrade of warming. And so what was built into the Paris Agreement was a five-year revisit of those options. And this is the first of those five-year revisits where countries can revise their ambition to try and get closer to that 1.5 degrees of warming that they would like us to suffer as opposed to the kind of catastrophic impacts that a three degrees of warming will have, which is a very long way of saying there's that is part of the importance for this year. However, what we expect to happen is that countries will actually put their offers out on the table in advance of any COP. So you could say, well, if we've got that ambition, do we still need the COP? There are uh, bits of negotiation that still need to happen. In particular, there's something, uh, and it sounds extremely arcane, Article 6, which is about international trading of carbon emissions. And for a lot of countries and for a lot of companies, that's very important and they're very focused on that. And it's about getting the rules for being able to trade set out internationally. And the other extremely important items still on the table is you know how to ensure transparency between what countries are doing and to, to be able to trust what they're doing. So there are important reasons within the negotiations for the COP, but I also think that COPs, you know, and I, you, Peter, you and I have discussed in the past, neither of us are particularly in favour of 40,000 people flying around the world to save the planet. Um, however, they do provide other benefits and, you know, it's, it's kind of worth thinking about those too. Do you think it will be much different from uh, other COPs insofar as the US is back? That surely is one of the biggest things that might be sort of see, said to have happened this coming COP as opposed to the COP we had in Madrid before that, where the US had definitely declared it was withdrawing from the agreement. And if it hadn't quite happened at that moment, it was clearly... Um, a sobering moment that 
now we've seemingly, have we passed it? Are we back where we were? Well, I think it's obviously very important to have the US back in the room. One, they're a major emitter. And two, there are other countries in the world that do follow the US in what they're doing. So we can look at, um, if we want to name names, Australia and Brazil, for example, who might look to what a, a US president is doing and wondering about their own position on this. And it definitely helps to have more of an inclusive club of all, getting somewhere closer to what we had in Paris than to have others pulling away from this. However, I think it's important to note that, you know, even without the US back in the room, progress was made. And before, I think, or just before the election of uh, President Biden, the EU, or certainly around that time, had already proposed and has now accepted a new target for itself for uh, 2030, which is the target that we're looking at at this COP. So it's what are we going to do over the next nine years? And the EU previously had a target to reduce its emissions by 2030 by 40% below 1990. Apologies for all these dates and etc. So it's target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's now moved to a position where it's going to reduce its emissions by at least 55%. And actually, because of Brexit, that's probably a bit harder than it sounds as well, because the UK, uh, one way or another, was a sort of net positive contributor to emissions reductions, which is why they've set their target to reduce emissions by at least 68%, I think, on 1990, which sounds very impressive. But it's really about you know moving coal off the grid in a lot of places can have a dramatic impact. And then it's tackling the rest of what needs to happen. So I think, you know, if you look at what's happened since Paris, a lot of countries, I can't remember the exact number, but a lot of countries, particularly countries around Europe, and particularly we're looking at the US on this, have now said that they want to get to carbon neutrality or net zero. And there's an important discussion about what those things mean by the middle of the century. And then setting their 2030 goals and ambitions to be in line with achieving that. So, you know, the clear message that I would hope would come out of COP26 is that countries are really serious about tackling climate change and recognizing that we have to do that in less than 30 years and that we can't put off action. It needs to happen by, you know, really serious action needs to happen by 2030. And I think that's a really important point for business and others. And if I think back to the importance of Paris and the run up to Paris, I think one of the most important benefits that we get from COP is that kind of momentum and messaging that businesses take seriously. And I have to say, despite having been a policymaker myself in the past, they often take far more seriously than the regulations that are meant to get them to that place. You know, in a perfect world, all companies would make rational decisions based on economics, but we are in an imperfect world. So they often need political prods to understand why they are facing particular regulations and particular policies. Having, like you, participated in several of these COPs in the past, I, I can't help but be a little bit disappointed with the fact that what we're doing, seemingly, is that we're asking for countries to make pledges, commitments, and every five years increase those commitments. And we're in this round now of commitments being made public as and, and more ambitious than they were before. But my feeling is what we should be concentrating on is implementation of pledges. Mm -hmm. And I feel, you know, it's all very well having promises made by politicians who won't be around, perhaps even in five years' time, let alone by 2030 or 2050. And as you just said, 
industries are waiting for the regulatory steps that will be flanking measures to those high ambition. I think they're waiting for both the regulatory steps, but at a high level, they hear the political messaging. So, you know, if you, I, in the run up to the Paris COP, I was working in industry at the time and I was working for a major equipment provider to the thermal power sector. And what was really interesting to me was the shift that happened in the run up to the Paris COP. So what happened then was there was a big divestment from coal campaign across Europe and they heard that. And there was constant political messaging, whether it's from Pre President Obama or for other you know, major leaders. And I can remember the significant shift then within the people I was sitting on boards with, et cetera, was they went from trying to lobby to protect coal to saying, no, coal is over. And that was in Europe. It wasn't global by any means, but they were hearing those messages. Now, the regulation had been trying to push them and the ETS and all sorts of other things had been trying to push them to that. But that was the point at which they realized that, you know, they needed to be not just trying to defend what they had been making their money from, but changing their business model, looking at new technologies and investing in other things. And I think COP is really important for that. The other thing about the Paris COP, which you know, is again one of the benefits, is if you've got lots of business leaders saying, we want you to take ambitious decisions because we can invest against that kind of certainty, it really does help create the mood music. Now, let's be absolutely honest, we're hearing about the ambition in advance of COP26. So whatever happens in November and whether it happens in Glasgow in November, I think is also an important discussion. But nevertheless, the mood music of having businesses stand there and saying, we are ready to work with this. We're ready to work with more ambition is really, really important. And, you know, it certainly sends strong signals to those bits of the globe that are a little bit behind the curve on this, let's say. I would agree that the international process does have the benefit of being the reference point against which regulation is set. You know, since we in Europe have these uh, legally binding reduction targets under the Kyoto Protocol, that was the trigger for us to take steps to introduce policies that would reduce our emissions so as to fulfill the targets. So, you know, although they're very high level, these COPs, a lot of noise around them, a lot of spin, you might say, but if the overriding messaging is clear, its purpose is, is essential even. But let me just ask you one thing, Jill. It's been postponed already from last year. Is it going to be in September all back to business as usual? Because vaccination plans across the world are going to perhaps uh, take longer than that to really have a good effect. And I worry that you'll have a, a cop amongst the developed countries whose vaccination programs are largely completed. But that isn't going to be inclusive enough. And if you have a hybrid, is this is it feasible? I, I completely agree. I think, you know, at the moment, the UK government, the hosts are saying it will go ahead in some form. But I think what we have learned is that for many countries, and let's face it, you know, even while we've been doing this chat, my, my internet has gone down once. So, you know, for many countries, actually participating in negotiations without the infrastructure, the broadband infrastructure is very, very difficult. And that becomes exclusive then. As you said, you know, and as as we speak, sort of vaccine diplomacy or vaccine wars are very much a topic. And the uneven 
um, kind of rollout of vaccination, but also the warnings from certainly chief medical advisors around the world that we are likely to face another wave in the autumn, to me means that, you know, this is a once in, so far, we haven't had a pandemic like this for just over 100 years, that this is a real time to take stock and say, actually, is it a cop in November in Glasgow at any price? When, frankly, if I was a citizen of Glasgow, I would be worried about people coming from all over the world to my city. I'd be worried about holding a COP, which not everybody could participate in. What I see is that certainly for these every five-year COPs, these important ratchets, it's not just a question of having the negotiators there. You know it's a bit of a circus, and we can decry the circus, but actually it does play an important role, as it also means the eyes of the press globally are on this, and that helps raise the profile and the ambition, I think, and also to understand what is possible. So, you know, another aspect of the COP is the kind of trade fair alongside it, yeah. the technologies and approaches that different countries and different companies are taking. And I think that's very important too, because there's nothing quite so good as wanting to be better than your neighbor to try and drive that ambition. So for all of those reasons, I, you know, I'm really concerned that no option is a good option. It's not great to delay things, but one of the things that we know about pandemics is we've got all these new variants. We're likely to need a booster. There's very uneven rollout of vaccination across the world. There are at least 60 countries as we speak that haven't been able to give anybody a vaccination yet. And we also know that being in unventilated rooms indoors is not great when you're trying to stop the spread. And if there is one city at one time of the year where it's very much going to be an indoor cop, I have to say it's Glasgow in November. And my, my personal option would be to delay it for six months and try and have a more stable supply chain for vaccines, a better yeah. rollout of vaccines. And actually, the sort of conditions where you can have more meetings outside or more meetings better ventilated than you could in November in Glasgow. Just recalling, if there were to be two COPs in one year, it would not actually be unprecedented because I was at COP6, which was in The Hague and wasn't a great success. It didn't actually manage to close the deal that was being sought that year. And we met about six months later in Bonn for COP six and a half. You could have a year of two COPs, it could potentially. I don't think it would be unprecedented as long as the mood music stayed right. Everyone was continuing to be ambitious. Uh, deployment of measures, implementation of measures were going on in parallel because it wouldn't be good if we were postponing things. Waiting for COPs, we need to get going. We definitely need to get going, but I do think we could recognise the, the other importance is to be inclusive, to make sure that, you know, this is a COP for everybody who needs to be at the COP. And then we also need to think about, well, OK, if we're finishing the negotiations now, should we be having these COPs every year or should we start to think about a timetable for them that doesn't lose the momentum? You know, how can we do this? And I don't pretend to have any answers, but I do think a discussion is needed. Then we have a stock take of, you know, how far have we got due in... 2023, we have the next ratchet currently due for 2025. You know, are there points where we should be doing it at those points rather than every year? Or do we have regional COPs annually? Or, you know, how do we do this? But I think from the, the perspective of, of, you know, we've learned from both pandemic and from greenhouse gas emissions, 
flying lots of people around the world all the time is not a great idea. We also know that broadband doesn't work for everybody all the time. We need to find ways in which we can facilitate these things so that they are genuinely inclusive and provide an opportunity for all. And I suspect that a lot of least developing countries would want to have the option on a regular basis to put their case and their concerns to those like Europe, like the US, like China, and increasingly like India and other uh, other places, let's say the G20, you know, to reduce emissions more quickly, to remember the impact that this has on the ground. I think this international process is also useful in providing milestones that can be the triggers for action within the regional groups. I'm thinking of the climate law in Europe. You know, I think the thing that Europe would imagine bringing to the COP26 is a legally binding climate law in Europe that commits Europe to net zero in 2050 and a target in 2030 that, as you say, will be at least 54% reduction. Quite honestly, that proposal was made a year ago and it's been languishing rather between the European institutions and we almost need there to be international events to actually make us get ready or get do it before. Yeah. Right now, the, the big event that the US is going to host on the 22nd of April as being an event for which we ought to have finished and agreed the climate law. So sometimes these international milestones actually are almost necessary for us to be able to agree things. Yeah, and I think there's there's a number uh, alongside the COP that's meant to be happening in Europe. And as I said, my uh, this year, my preference would be, or be all options are not great, but probably to delay it for a few months so it can be more respective of the, the pandemic conditions and the vaccination rollout. But we also have the G7 and the G20 every year. And these increasingly are opportunities for world leaders to discuss what they are doing on climate, both, you know, on mitigating climate change, but also adapting, which is becoming an increasingly important part as we see each year. And I think obviously one of the reasons why I think we have better global buy-in to this now is more countries actually physically see the impacts of climate change. A lot of this is happening far more quickly than in any of us, including scientists anticipated even sort of 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, we are seeing these impacts. So I agree. I think COPs are a really important focus for the world's press, for ordinary citizens to look and see what their leaders are, are deciding, for companies to show off what they can do and stand ready and to understand what is required of them. And of course, one of the important things that's happened since Paris is that Europe um, used to have a reduction target of 80 to 90 percent by 2050. It was a little bit vague. The world is increasingly moving to recognizing that we need to be carbon free. And that's important because certainly my experience of working with countries and companies is as long as you had sort of 10 or 20 percent of greenhouse gas emissions still left on the table, they all thought they were for them and that everybody else could do the reductions. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons why it's really important that we understand that net zero is not about buying offsets and continuing as we used to. It's about reducing and reducing and reducing and recognizing that for some aspects, we need a little bit more time to get the technologies or the different business models in place, but that's not an excuse to carry on with business as usual at all. Indeed, and we've got to get serious about measures, and we will be doing, I mean, the European Union is going to propose a whole host of measures in June this year in order to be more ambitious through its legislation 
and that, if you like, is the next interesting point. The EU is is going to do a number of things. Are we going to see more of the same, or is there anything new that could be put on the table? Well, I think I think when when you're in Europe, it's difficult to remember just how far Europe has come. Europe does very justifiably see itself as a leader on climate change, and I think the climate law is really important because in many parts of the world. Tackling climate change is still seen as a transition from coal to gas, and Europe actually recognizes now that this is about encompassing every part of the economy. It is not just about the energy transition; it's about how do we transition our transport, how do we transition agriculture, what do we do with land, and how we use our land. The Green Deal in Europe, I think, encompasses almost 50 policy areas. So I think there's a real opportunity for Europe to demonstrate. Some of the things that we have been thinking about here in Europe is the why we are thinking about them, because I don't think that always gets out to others who are tackling climate change from a different starting point. So I think that's really important. I think there are also other issues that you know Europe can raise, and we know that we need to tackle CO2, but it's not the only greenhouse gas. Methane is a very, very powerful greenhouse gas that impacts on warming right now, and there are lots of measures that we can take that could impact on how much methane is being emitted. Now, some of that comes from the oil and gas sector, and some of that comes from agriculture and land use, and some of it comes from waste. But you know, all of these things need tackling, and I think that's where Europe is in an advantage. Sometimes we make missteps along the way, and that's natural when we're trying to tackle new issues. And we can we could look back and think about the missteps that have been taken in the past. But I think what Europe has been doing is been chipping away, recognizing the mistakes, trying to overcome them, and doing that. Pioneering work that others can learn from. So I think there is a real opportunity there for Europe to show some of the importance of other issues and how we're thinking about tackling them, and recognizing that for many of these other issues, there is maybe a more local perspective. If we're looking at buildings, or we're looking at agriculture, or we're looking at forestry, they all are very, very local. And then one that perhaps we might come to discuss、um, sometime soon is the sort of trade impacts as well, and how we deal with that. June will be a, a key moment because having so far been able to all subscribe to the idea of being more ambitious in Europe and elsewhere, there's been general consensus in Europe that that's what we should do, and it's just now deciding on whether the ambition level is higher sooner than otherwise. But once the proposals get put on the table, there's going to be some. Impacts on companies that will be harder to bear, indeed. Impacts on perhaps other sectors of the economy. I mean, we're going to have to be more ambitious in housing or buildings and, and how they perform. We're going to have to be more ambitious in how cars or motor vehicles perform. These are going to have impacts on people who are perhaps can't afford. All of the expensive technologies, at least initially expensive technologies, that would be involved. I mean, heat pumps in houses are more expensive. It's going to become difficult to be more ambitious while still bringing everyone along with us, isn't it? I think it is, but I think a lot of this is not. You know, one of the things that we have learned in Europe, maybe not all, not all companies and not all individuals have learned it, but the pandemic probably has helped us in some ways. Is this is not about how do we decarbonize what we're doing, 
but how do we have a good life that creates less carbon or less methane or any of the other greenhouse gases? And so obviously one of the things from the pandemic is we don't know exactly how we're going to work afterwards, but you're speaking from one of the rooms in your house, I'm speaking from one of the rooms in my house, and we do know that we're not gonna commute as much and our travel patterns are going to change. And I think many of us might be nervous for a few years at least, and maybe forever, about getting stuck in places where a, when a pandemic or a disease outbreak breaks out, unable to get home. So that may well impact on the choices that we make in future. And it could impact on the way we live our lives. And I think in many ways it could be for the better. And maybe that's a whole different conversation about what a, a low carbon life will be. What I would say from companies and, you know, in one of my previous lives, I've, I've led a business group but one of the things I learned there was that companies very often start off on their carbon journey, if you like, with what you might call eco bling. It's the odd wind turbine here, a lot of solar PV there. And they start from looking at how to take the carbon out of their energy use. But many of the most successful ones actually then move on to a, well, what is it we're trying to do? What service or good are we trying to provide for whom and why? And is there another way of doing that? And I think that kind of really interesting, exciting rethinking is what uh, that creativity that comes as you, you know, embark on that carbon journey, if you like, or that, that climate journey, creates a huge amount of innovation that has real benefits for us. There's a lot to talk about here, but I think there is the journey to what a, a low carbon or a zero carbon economy looks like and what the social benefits, if we access them and think about them early enough, can be. And that's about, you know, how do we create resilient communities that can really benefit from some of the things that, that the zero carbon economy can bring them, which would be cleaner air, a better work-life balance potentially by having less commuting time, all of these things. How do we harness those in a way where people do get, you know, come out of this with much, much better lives and don't feel that it's the expense of livelihoods? Yeah. And it's creating, you know, sustainable jobs. I'd argue there's, you may or may not be aware of the uh, deep coal mine proposed in Cumbria, very, very close to the, you know, Glasgow. And the argument being put forward by the local politicians that this will create 500 jobs. But really, how sustainable are those jobs? And is it setting people up to fail if you, if you find jobs in high carbon industries that are going to be, for one reason or another, redundant in a really short space of time. You know, they're not jobs for the future. And we're in a moment when every government is trying to relaunch its economy after the impact of the epidemic. And in Europe, there is a big recovery program with lots of money. Indeed, you know, there's the EU budget, which is itself a significant amount of money, but there's also lots of new money for the recovery and member states right now are invited to put to submit to the commission their recovery plans by the end of april and that to me presents itself as a incredibly timely opportunity to really scale up investment in technologies so that their costs come down because you know what's expensive today i hope would be less expensive in the future it will have less impacts in terms of costs on poorer households if costs uh, come down through scale. Think, you know there's a few examples that we we've been kicking around long enough to think about but you know the predictions of the cost of wind both onshore and offshore 
and the reality where the prices have plummeted in comparison to those estimates that we were looking back in the 2000s and the early 2010s, and similarly for photovoltaic and for battery storage, all of these things where the prices are, are dropping rapidly, that have been, they have been promoted by legislation and by targets that have helped drive the, the signals to industry. But, you know, human inventiveness has also been enormously important here in actually looking at how we can reduce the cost and how we can deploy these more effectively that have just changed the debate completely. I'm particularly pleased with the example you give of wind turbines, offshore wind turbines in particular, because uh, I come from the UK. Uh, I know the area where I was born around the Humberside is now producing wind turbines. There are factories, new investments coming. And the North Sea is, is becoming a new energy resource after the petrol and gas that it produced, the oil and gas it produced in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now it's becoming something completely different. For me, that is a great story of transition, which I would hope there can be other examples of in other member states, perhaps solar where it's more sunny, geothermal, who knows? There are so many technologies that could change the face of our energy system. And if we change the energy system, we are also changing the climate impacts that we're having. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, you know, I think most of the trouble, if you wanted to talk about what we've learned in Europe, is a lot of this has been easier and cheaper than we originally envisaged. That sometimes had impacts that we didn't foresee. And you could look at, there's a lot of things that contributed to a low price in the carbon market before it was solved. But one of them was actually, you know, the fact that some of this stuff is easier than envisaged. I think we should take some optimism from that, that when, when human beings put their minds to solving some of these problems, it can be difficult to start with. And then there are huge kind of steps forward. And I think if we look at the big challenges that we face now on buildings, on land use, on transport, you know, we can see that they're beginning to be unpicked and made easier in ways that, again, 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. I am a, a sort of gloomy optimist on this. There's a lot to do, but we actually have achieved a lot and a lot more than we anticipated that we would at this point as well. Uh, just thinking of other big countries, um, the US, they, are they going to come to the COP uh, with a whole suite of new policies on climate change? Or are they going to throw money at the problem and by so doing, bring costs of technology down so that they perhaps can be deployed almost without the push from policy? What do you well, think? They've had, a, they've had a lost four years, if you like, haven't they? And I mean, I think it's been encouraged us all to see not only was this the first election in the US, the presidential election, where climate was an issue, and climate change was an issue. But the first thing that President Biden has done is sign lots of orders relating to climate and efficiency and, and really tackling these issues. We know that we are expecting the US's contribution to 2030, it's that level of ambition to be announced in advance of Earth Day on the 22nd of April. And we also know that because of the stop start in the US, and that's you know, it wasn't just the Paris Agreement they pulled out of, they also pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol as well. So they, they have a history of stop start on this, which that's one of the, the kind of challenges that they have to overcome for the international community 
is to make sure that what they bring forward has credibility. But I think my recollection is they use a slightly different baseline from the EU. So they use 2005. And I think at the moment, they're probably in the high teens, in mid to high teens in terms of the emissions re reductions they've achieved against 2005, which given the history of the last four years is, you know, perhaps more than we might have expected. However, they're going to have a heavy lift to get to 2030. And as with Europe, you know, the level of competence, who is responsible for what varies from federal and state level. And so it's not always straightforward. But I think you know, many of us are hoping and um, Environmental Defence Fund has recently produced a report saying it's got to be at least 50 percent reduction by 2030, which you know, most would estimate to be comparable with the European level of effort that's being um, put forward. So, you know, we certainly want to see that leadership. I think I mentioned earlier that there are key countries and Australia may not be huge in terms of population, but in terms of environmental impact, it's pretty huge because it exports a lot of coal and, and other things to China, Japan and, and elsewhere. And we certainly want to see Australia taking much more um, cognizance of where they need to be in 2050. And I think without the US to hide behind, they really will need to step up there. Similarly, Brazil, again, it could be other measures that, that persuade Brazil to tackle the environmental impacts and climate change impacts of their industries more. But, you know, nevertheless, it definitely helps to have the US there. So we're, we're waiting for them to state their ambition in the next few weeks. We're hoping it'll be comparable with the EU, kind of recognise that because of the stop start nature and despite some real leaders in the US, so California has always been a real leader on this and some of the northeastern United States as well. We're expecting a good level of ambition that can can drive others forward. So and I think we're hopeful. We, you know, we never say never, but, you know, that we can only be hopeful on that. And, and Jill, before we leave this topic of the COP, uh, China is a very significant player, obviously. And they were announcing to some satisfaction that we heard that they're going to go carbon neutral by 2060, which people thought, great, that's something. But then we also know that China is continuing to build coal-fired power stations. So how, how are those two things compatible well, it is quite a complex picture, isn't it? And I think on the one hand, we know that one of the reasons why the cost of uh, solar PV has come down is obviously because of the Chinese production and innovation they're building on what Europe had done previously. And that's been really important. And actually, in terms, I think, in terms of deployment of renewables, then China does lead the world. But yet, it, as you say, it's still building coal-fired power Plant, though it's also closing quite new coal-fired power plant that don't meet efficiency standards. So it is a pretty mixed picture. Last year, I think we were all quite optimistic. We got two statements from China about carbon neutrality by 2060 and about tipping their emissions so that they start to go down by 2030. I think there's generally a feeling that China can tip its emissions before 2030, and therefore it would be great to see that enshrined in some sort of commitment. And they recently met with the Biden administration, and I think there's been quite a lot of politicking. And let's let's recognise that you know there is a lot of politicking around China at the moment, and a lot of concern globally. My experience actually is climate is one of those places where China does understand what's in its interests, and it knows it needs to take action on this. And despite the fact that we all think you know 
different political systems have more control. But we also know that, you know, in the further flung districts of China, it's probably harder to control local administrations and to get the message across. But nevertheless, I think we hope to see progress there. The, the draft of the 14th five-year plan, and, and China produces these five-year plans every five years, not surprisingly, I think was a bit disappointing. But I suspect that there's a bit of negotiation built in there and being able to offer maybe to the US administration, if you do this, we'll do that in order to move things forward. It's going to be very important. Certainly hope to see more ambition from China. And at the moment, there's a feeling that they're holding back. So we can, we should know in the next few weeks, I think there is a meeting planned, uh, a summit planned just prior to the Earth Day on the 22nd. So let's hope something, something positive comes out of that. Great. Well, thanks. That's a great roundup of our discussion about the next COP. So thanks a lot, Will. Thank you, Peter.